Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys uh, this morning. We're glad you're here to worship uh, with us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Joshua chapter 2. Um, that's where we're going to be. Uh, if this is your first time or you weren't here last week and you didn't get a scripture journal, uh, if you could just raise your hand. Um, jo- Josiah or Theo, just keep your hand up. Josiah or Theo will uh, pass those around. I don't know if they're ready at the moment, but just keep them up. They'll get one to you. That's our gift to you. Uh, uh, one of our values here at Aletheia Church is just the Bible, and we believe strongly that uh, the Word of God is powerful, uh, it's alive, it is active, and so uh, we want you guys uh, to bring those with you and to be studying God's Word with us um, as we're processing through uh, Joshua 2 over the course of the next several weeks. And so um, last week, uh, I had entitled my sermon, Be Strong and Courageous. Uh, it's kind of the, the theme that we're going to see throughout uh, the book of Joshua. And what, what we're going to see is uh, God's promise uh, to Joshua and, and to the people of Israel uh, that he is going to give them the promised land. But in response to that promise, he commands Joshua to be strong and courageous, that he wants Joshua and subsequently the people of Israel to respond to his goodness, to respond to his promises by obeying and entering the land. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, this was a problem for them. Forty years prior, he had sent spies into the land to give them the land, and they chickened out. They, they went in, ten, 10 of the 12 said, hey, there's giants there, we'll get destroyed, we don't care what God says, it's going to be terrible, we should just hang out here. While two spies had said, no, God has given us this land, we should enter. And so for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, and now we are to this point in the story where God is about to give them the land, and they're going to realize this promise of God Uh, realized in their lives, that God's faithfulness to his covenant is going to come to pass. And so up until until chapter two, so so there's some verses that we kind of skipped over, and I just want to give you a real quick recap of what goes on in those verses so that we know what's going on in the narrative of the story. We see that Joshua responds to God's word to him by going to Israel and saying to them, he goes to the elders, he says, all right, guys, get ready. We got three days And then we're crossing the Jordan, and we're going to begin this military uh, conflict. We're going to war. Be ready. And two and a half of the tribes that had been given land east of the Jordan agreed to uh, fulfill their oath to head into the land and uh, help uh, possess the land of Canaan. And then we arrive at chapter 2, and we're going to see that Israel is going to begin taking the necessary steps for a military conquest. And we're going to also be introduced to a woman by the name of Rahab. That uh, passage that Charlotte just read to us is part of her story and what she's doing. Uh, And so as we start to unpack Joshua 2 this morning, though, I, I want to have us think through this idea of loyalty or allegiance. What are we loyal to? Where do our loyalties lie? What are our allegiances? And, and so if you want to write this down, right, what are you loyal to? It can be anything, right? How many of you guys are loyal to the Florida Gators in here? There's like four of you, right? There's a Seminole grad somewhere that I heard say no. Right, there we go, right? 
okay? Uh, how many of you guys are loyal to a certain brand of car? Right? Uh, yeah, more hands went up, right? Like my grandfather was a Ford man, and to, to have bought a Chevy was a sin against the family, right? Like it, it, my grandfather would have turned over in his grave if he knew I owned a Chevy truck at one point in time, right? How many of you guys are loyal to the USA, right? Yeah, right? America, right? Right? People get excited about that, right? There's patriotism. We get excited with our, our cultural heritage or, or what our nationality might be. I mean, for goodness sake, if you went to public school, they indoctrinated you with the Pledge of Allegiance every day, right? Like, hey, I, I pledge of allegiance to the flag, right? I, I, my loyalty lies with this country, right? And, and so here's the question, though. What would it take to get you to trade your loyalty to a different tribe or team? If you're, a, if you're a gator, what would it take to get you to change your allegiance to the Seminoles? I mean, you guys are like deaf. Right? If, if you're a Ford man, right, what would it take to get you to switch to a Chevy? Right? If you're a U.S. citizen, what would it take to get you to want to become Canadian? Warm weather would be a start for me, but, you know. Right? What, what would it take to get you to change those uh, loyalties or allegiances? And the story of Rahab is a story of allegiance and how when we come into contact with God and his grace, no allegiance or loyalty that we have is worth holding on to over him. Right? That Rahab is going to be confronted with the power and majesty and grace and goodness of God and it is going to radically transform her life, and it's going to radically transform her allegiances from being with the people of Canaan and her cultural heritage to the people of Israel and the people of God. And so if you'll bow your head with me, I'm going to ask that God would meet us this morning as we unpack his word and as we study this book together. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us so that we might know who you are and who we are in light of you. Father, I pray that this morning we would see a few things, that we would see your goodness, we would see your faithfulness, that we will see your holiness, and God, that you might move in our hearts, that Holy Spirit, you would do a work that only you could do, to change us, to help us to place our trust and our loyalty in you and you alone. And that out of that overflow, we would love the world around us and that we would glorify you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Joshua chapter 2, look at verse 1 with me. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shethim, right? The pastor has to pronounce that word, right? A lot of fun. There we go, right? Sent them, the two men secretly from Shethim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. So Joshua sends these two men out as spies. And this is important being as how they're getting ready to, to head into a great military conquest as a people. 
And, and they're going to be hopefully getting some important information. They're going to get the topography of the land. They're going to hopefully be able to study and figure out food and water supply chain information. Um, they're going to uh, figure out what the defenses of Jericho look like because Jericho was one of the major fortified cities of Canaan. And they're going to learn about the morale of the people there. They want to know, hey, do the people, are they, are they ready for war or are they scared? Are they organized or are they not organized? Because Canaan was the dominant civilization west of the Jordan River, and Jericho was this very strategic city and military stronghold uh, fortified with two sets of walls once you headed west of the Jordan River. And so these two spies, they kind of you know, get dressed, they head into Jericho, and the Bible says they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. All right, so elephant in the room. Because I know some of you guys are thinking, why is that the first place they went? Right, why, why is the Bible immediately saying that they went to the prostitute's house inside of the city of Jericho? All right, so here's one of those interesting moments where I get to tell you, I don't know. I, the Bible doesn't tell us. Right? They could have been there for... Right? Let your, let, your, let your imagination take you to its conclusion. Right? Doesn't necessarily have to be that, though. Right? If you are a foreigner tr- as a spy trying to go into enemy territory and blend in, a prostitute's brothel is a pretty good place for that because no one else wants to go in there and follow you and figure out why you're there. Like, hey, what, why those two guys go in there? Anybody else want to follow them in? Mm-hmm. My wife didn't want to see me go in there. Nope. Right? So it would have been strategic for them to be there, and they would have likely met people from around the area to know what's going on. But either way, right, this is one of those moments where I love the Bible because it does not hide unflattering details. Right? If you were writing a history of your people, right, and trying to present them as great military conquerors who had a holy God and that they were more righteous than everyone around them, you would not include this detail at the beginning of your story. Yeah, right before we took over the land, we went to the prostitute's house, right? Never read a a great legendary story that kind of started out with that beginning. And so we see, though, that these two spies enter the house, and as they enter the house, they're introduced to this woman named Rahab. What do we know about her? We know that her home and her livelihood is supported by sex trafficking in the sex industry. This was her career. This was her profession. So she likely does not have a great reputation in her community. We also know that she's a Canaanite. And so because she's a Canaanite and a prostitute, she is not of God's people, both culturally right, and racially, but she's also not following God and his law with the business that she uh, participates in or runs. And this is what I want you to see about this, right? I think God is very, very intentional in this entire uh, story and situation, right? Here you have Rahab, the prostitute, the Canaanite prostitute who, who dislike and hate the nation of Israel. And what we're going to see is you have this woman who's a part of a, a uh a career path, an occupation, a job, right, that would have been detested by God's people. And what do we see? 
God wants to save her. How amazing is that? You have this Canaanite prostitute running a brothel in town, and God sovereignly sends these two spies into her home because he's like, that's the woman I want to save from that city. She's the one. And we're going to see this today, that, that Rahab's story in Joshua 2 is so beautiful because it is a glimpse into the grace and redemption we find in God. Right? See, I want to connect this, right? No one is too far from God's grace. No one. Right? You may be sitting here this morning and you may be saying or thinking to yourself, you don't know what I've done this past week. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know how many times I keep giving in to the same habitual sins and patterns over and over again. You just, you just don't know how horrible I am and what I've done. God doesn't want me. Right? And when we look at the story of Rahab, we see that that is a lie from the mouth of Satan himself because God is in the business of redeeming. That when God chooses to rescue somebody, he does not care what they've done because his grace is sufficient. And so we, we look at this and we say that God is in the business of saving and redeeming, and that includes sex trafficking prostitutes from a godless nation that hates God and his people. Because that's how big God is. That's, that's how how big God's grace is. And so when you look at verses two through seven, let me read those to you and, 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 and see what happens. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. All right, so, so the king of Jericho somehow finds out that these two Israelite spies are in the city of Jericho. He knows that they've gone to Rahab's house. And he sends his guards to go find the spies. And Rahab, Canaanite prostitute, hides them on the roof when she sees the guards coming. She, she hides them up amongst the, st the stalks. And then when the king's guards ask her, hey, where are those two guys that were here? She lies to them. Like, yeah, I don't know. And she sends the men on a fruitless chase outside of the city. So I want to I address for a moment a, a, a theological kind of conundrum that arises here, especially if you're familiar with this story or not. And that's this. Is Rahab sinning by lying to the king's guards? Because right, I've, I've heard all sorts of different theories about this over the years. Okay, so 
Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 with me, okay? Right? God says this to Moses, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? It's pretty clear, right? What's he saying there? Don't lie. Pretty clear, okay? And, and, and you may be asking, okay, why does God care about that? Why, that? why is that such a big deal? If you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul gives us a pretty clear indication of why this is. He says, in, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Right, so, so what we see from Paul is that God in his very nature and character is unable to lie. Right? In his holiness, he is wholly truthful all the time. Meaning to, to, to ask of his people to be holy because he is holy means that we are called to be truthful because God is truthful. So when God asks this of the nation of Israel, as he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he's saying, Israel, in my, in my very nature, and in my very being, and in my very character, I, I am truthful. I cannot lie. And as my people, you are to display my character and my attributes to the world around you. Therefore, do not bear false testimony with your neighbors. So, we see that Rahab clearly has violated right, that principle. And yet, if you go to the New Testament, though, you'll see in two separate places, both in the book of James and the book of Hebrews, that Rahab is esteemed as a hero, both in the book of Joshua and in the New Testament. Let me read Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with Hebrews 11 at all, right, it's called kind of the Hall of Faith. Right? It's this famous passage where the author of Hebrews is writing about what faith really is and what it looks like. And when you get to Hebrews 11, right, this is, this is what he says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So, so we see like in those first three verses, right, the author of Hebrews is trying to unveil to us what faith really looks like and how it's a, it's a, it's a, a trust and things that we haven't actually experienced or put our hands on or seen, but that we trust God at his word and we believe that he is good. And then if you go down to verse 29, look at what he says. If you know anything up until this point, right, he's going to start listing all these people in the Old Testament who had displayed faith in God and therefore seen righteousness because of that faith and seen God fulfill his promises because of that faith, right? And then we get to verse 29 and look what happens. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. We'll be there in a few weeks. Joshua 6. By faith, look who, look at who he starts talking about in verse 31. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile 
right? What God says to be true and his good and perfect commands, the actions of Rahab, and yet see the Bible esteem her, right? Here's what I want to say. God in his word commends Rahab's faith, not her lie. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds of, well, what if she had told the truth? What would happen? I don't know. That's not what happened. Right? And I'm not Dr. Strange where I can see 10,000 multiple outcomes. For those of you guys that have never seen the movies, I'm sorry. You have no idea what that illustration means. But, but what I do know is that Rahab, by faith, believed that the spies were there for a reason, that God was behind what they were doing, and that she needed to place her trust in their God. And the Bible commends her faith, even though she lied. And so the question we ask ourselves is this, then, why would Rahab do this? Why would Rahab who has this business in Jericho. She's safe behind these walls. This is a military stronghold. She clearly at least is surviving in this community. Why would she risk her family, risk her life, and betray her very people for these two spies? We're going to see the answer to that in verses 8 through 14. I got three things we see here as to reasons why Rahab would betray Jericho for Israel. Let's look at the first one, verses 8 and 9. Her faith has been moved from her people, from Jericho, to God himself, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. Let's look at starting in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. See what she says to them? I know. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, Now think about that for a moment. There's not there's nothing really indicating to her that this is truly going to happen. Yet God has transformed the heart of Rahab to trust him so that she might lie and send the king's guards on a fool's errand so that she might protect these two spies. Think about about it from this perspective. Not only has God transformed Rahab to the point that, that she's going to lie and betray her own people, But think about the encouragement that would have come to these two spies. Here they are in enemy territory. They've been found. Uh, Jericho knows that there's spies there. And yet this woman, this prostitute, protects them, keeps them safe. And then not only that, she tells them, hey, I know that God is behind what you guys are doing, and I'm going to help you. Think about the encouragement that that would have brought those two spies. And what I want you to see is Rahab's not the hero of the story here because this is God fulfilling his promise to the Israelites. If you look back at Exodus chapter 23, verse 27, right? God is promising the people that he will send them into the land. And look at what he says. I will send my terror before you 
and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. See, the very fact that Rahab has turned her back on the people of Jericho and the king and the king's guards is proof that God is keeping his promise to the Israelites. His faithfulness is going to be shown time and time again throughout the book of Joshua. And God is fulfilling his promise to Israel even before they cross the Jordan right, by having Rahab help these spies before they ever enter the promised land. And so what has caused Rahab to trust God? I think verses 10 through 11 give us that answer, that the testimony of God's faithfulness has convinced her to follow him. And look at verses 10 and 11. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab had heard the account of what God had done for Israel. She had heard the testimony and because of that testimony, her view of God had changed. And if you know anything about the Canaanites, they worshiped a number of different gods, but one of them was the god Molech, right? And Molech was a cool god, right? He only asked you to sacrifice your children to keep him happy, right? He's sketch. And so here you have, right, the Canaanites, right? They worship this god Molech who, who loves child sacrifice. You have Rahab who grew up with this and saw this. And then she hears the testimony of this tribe being led out of, out of Egypt as slaves, that the Red Sea had parted as they crossed it, that God had preserved and kept them in the wilderness for 40 years, had given them victory. And she's like, hold on a second. Why are we worshiping Molech? Hmm, God who preserves and keeps his people and loves them or the God that wants to kill my child? Hmm, tough decision, not for Rahab. Right? Her allegiances have changed and her view of God has changed from having placed her trust in appeasing Molech to trusting in God and his promises. Church, hear me when I say this. When God fulfills his promise to his people, the testimony of his works are powerful. The testimony of what God has done in the lives of his people is always powerful. I, I know guys who used to run in gangs. They carried semi-automatic weapons. They stole cars. And one of the guys in that group that I knew went to jail, and while he was in jail, he met Jesus. And his life was radically transformed when he met Jesus. And he gets out, and he immediately goes back into this neighborhood that he, he had run around in. And his life is so different that all of his friends that he had run around with in this gang, they're like, something's different about you. What's going on? Like, I don't understand. Like, you're helping people. 
you have a job. Like you're not getting in trouble. You were like the hardest one of all of us. That's why you were in jail and we weren't. Like, what's going on? He's like, man, like, God transformed my life. I saw, I saw what God did and it, and it completely transformed me. And guess what started happening? Because of his testimony of change and what God had done in his life, those other people started giving their life to Christ. Right? They saw the testimony of God's faithfulness to him. And they're like, this is, I don't know about the Bible. I don't know how reliable it is. I don't know the historical veracity of, of the Old Testament. But I can't deny what God's doing in your life. Right? His testimony was the power that God used to convince them. And God's testimony of his faithfulness to Israel is what was used to convince Rahab. See, this is what God does. The testimony of his salvation of Israel had reached Jericho, and people like Rahab began asking, is it possible that we've got it wrong and this God is the real God? Is it possible that Molech is actually a demon? Is it, is it possible we've been serving the wrong God? Church family, hear me when I say this. What, what is your testimony of God's faithfulness in your life? Or what, if, what have you seen God do in your life? What has God transformed in you? Because here's what I would say to you. God wants to use that story to testify to his power, to testify to his grace, and to testify to his mercy so that others might be drawn to him and trust him. I remember when I was in college, God was mean to me. He kept sending Christians around me. And they wouldn't leave me alone. And, and I was wrestling with all these, these inner demons in my own life and these own things. And, and I was doing all the things that the world told me would bring me happiness. I was partying. I was having unprotected sex. I was doing all the things right, that the world says, hey, this is what will bring you joy and happiness. And guess what? I really wasn't that happy. And yet all these Christians, man, just happy all the time. Like, what's wrong with you all? Like something is seriously wrong with you. And then you would ask and they'd be like, Jesus. And I'm like, well, I mean, okay, thanks for the Sunday school answer, but what? Like, explain that to me. And the more that they would share their story about how God had changed their heart, changed their affections, changed what they care, cared about, I was like, well, something's going on. Guys, if you are a follower of Jesus in here, your testimony matters. Use it. Right? God wants to use the story of his faithfulness to you to reveal himself to others. Right? So we see that Rahab has betrayed Jericho for Israel because her faith had been moved from Molech to Yahweh. We see that the testimony of God's faithfulness is what had convinced her of his goodness. And then this is what we see in verses 12 through 14 that her faith in God led her to faith-based action. And look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. That you will save alive my brother 
excuse me, that you will save alive my father and my and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. As she talks to the men, knowing that God is going to give Jericho over to Israel, and she says, Swear to me by the Lord your God that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me. That word kindly is this Hebrew term, hesed. And it's the same term that's used in, con- in connection with God and his covenants with his people. Right? See, the, the idea of, about God giving a covenant to his people is that he was displaying his mercy or his kindness towards them. That there was hesed between God and his people, that God was dealing kindly with them, that he was acting with loyalty, that he was steadfast, that he was unwavering in that. And so Rahab is going to these two men, and here's what she's saying. Include me in the covenant of God's goodness and protection to Israel. I want to be a part of God's people. I want to be a part of his covenant. Deal kindly with me as I have dealt kindly with you. And, And see, what we see is her faith has led to exchanged allegiances. Right? Her, her allegiance to Canaan or from Team Jericho, she's now on Team Israel. She's, she's, she's gone from placing her trust in the military and the walls around Jericho to placing her trust in Yahweh and the testimony of what he has done. She has a new identity. See, out of that identity, she's going to be used by God to defeat her former people. Right, when you get to, to Joshua 6, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, except for her little uh, portion or her little house that was inside the wall of Jericho. Right, she, her, the walls come down and Israel enters and takes the city and she is spared. See, but out of her new identity, where her trust and her faith and her hope has been moved from the protection that Jericho could provide her to God, she's going to be strong and courageous for him. She's going to be strong and courageous to trust in God. Church, like Rahab, if you are in Christ, you have been given a new identity as well. If you look at Colossians 3, right? Look at what the Apostle Paul says is true of us. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See what he's saying there? He says, Hey, you you no longer exist for you anymore. That if you are in Christ, Right? You've exchanged your identity of being for self to now being for God. And with that, you have died to self and you have been moved in Christ. And in that, right, your identity is for him and to live for him. And look at what he says. If you go down to verse 12, look at what he calls them to do in light of that. He calls them to put that, that faith in God into faith-based action just like Rahab did. 
put on then, right? So see what he says, right? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I love when Paul does this, right? Whenever he gives a command, he always goes back to the indicative about that though. He always says, hey, here's what you do, but you're doing this in light of what God has already done for you, right? He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Like this is who you are. You're holy, you're beloved, you're God's chosen. Therefore, because of that, live this way. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See what he's saying? He's saying, Church of Colossae, brothers, sisters, we're new. Our identity is different than what it was before, and because of that, we are called to live in such a way as to reflect that glory to others, to make much of our God. We're hidden with Christ, and because we are hidden with Christ in God, we put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So what we see here is this beautiful story of redemption, right? of God meeting Rahab, right? the most unlikely of converts, right? the one least likely to have somebody witness to them, right? the one that is least likely to be on God's good list, and God redeems and rescues her. And God uses her to give Jericho over to Israel. And she's given to us when we get to the New Testament as an example of faithfulness. The last thing I want to do is I want to look at the verses that Charlotte read to us because there's a cool little thing in the midst of, of those couple of verses that I want to point out to you about what God does for Rahab. Look at verses 15 through 21. I'm going to read them again to us. Then she let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath 
that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent him away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I think it's so cool how God works that when we see um, threads and various stories of his faithfulness, there's these cool little reminders of things that he's done previously. See, Rahab has trusted God. She's believed in the testimony of what he's done, and she's lived that out by, by, by faith in protecting the spies who have entered Jericho. And they covenant with one another, and those men vow to spare her and her family. And one of the things they ask her to do in regards to keeping that covenant is to hang that scarlet cord from her window. And her window would have been visible to the Israelites from outside the city walls. They would have seen that cord hanging there. It would have been a sign to them to spare her. You may be thinking, like, why, why is that such a big deal? Like, why, why does that matter? What's going on? Let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon says about this, because all I could think of as I read this was the Passover, right? Spurgeon says, this small matter of obedience, as some call it, had an important symbolic significance. I'm not sure the spies meant by it that the scarlet thread would be the same to Rahab as the blood of the lintel and the side posts had been to Israel and Egypt but it does strike me as being probable. Those two men were so acquainted with the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood and the consequent preservation of all in this house, that it was natural they should give Rahab a sign like the token God had ordained for his people Israel when his angel passed them by in the day of doom. See, if you're not familiar with what God had done in Egypt to spare Israel, let me share it with you. Every year, Jews celebrate the Passover. And, and what they were celebrating was that the angel of death had passed over their homes and not killed their firstborn ch- child. Right? That the firstborn son of every Egyptian died that night as the angel of death had came over it, unless the blood of a lamb had been left on the lintel and the doorposts of the home they were in. And if that blood was on the, those doorposts and over top of the door, right, the angel of death passed over that house. And what that was is really, if you think about it, the Israelites were saying, by faith, we're trusting that God will pass over us if we do this. And so it was an act of obedience born out of faith in God and who he is. And in the same way, right, Rahab is placing this scarlet cord in her window so that the judgment and wrath of God might pass over her in her home. Right, that that the same way that God had been faithful to Israel, he was going to be faithful to Rahab, whose identity was now in him because he had rescued her. And that the wrath and judgment of God would pass over and that that promise she had made with these men was believed by faith and she obeyed. See, I want to share with you something that Pastor Joby Martin said when he was talking about this passage, that he says, Rahab is so similar even to us, right? That Rahab knows judgment is coming to her and to Jericho, but she believes in the promise of God by faith. She knows that she cannot save herself from that judgment, even with the walls of Jericho around her. 
And her only hope is to throw herself on the mercy of God and obey by protecting God's spies and placing that scarlet cord in the window to be passed over. And if you're familiar with Joshua chapter 6, the walls of the city crumble except for where Rahab's house is. That is a divine miracle that the walls of Jericho come down and yet her home is preserved and her people are kept safe. Church, like Rahab, we must surrender to God. There is no hope in your performance. There is no hope in your own goodness. There is no hope in your wealth or your intelligence. Like Rahab, like the Israelites in Egypt, we are entirely dependent upon the mercy of God for our salvation. And Paul in Romans chapter 3 puts it this way. Starting in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? So Paul's saying to us, you cannot save yourself from the judgment of God. You cannot do it. Right? All of us. Judgment awaits us because of our sinfulness. Look at what he says starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. If you don't know what that term propitiation is, it basically means a payment, right? Jesus was our payment to satisfy God's wrath for our sinfulness. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See that term passed over, right? Just as God had passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt, just as God passed over Rahab, right? That if you are in Christ, judgment passes over you because of what Jesus has done for you. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hear me, hear me when I say this, guys. Judgment is coming. It is coming. I know that's not popular in 2021, right? You go to church because you want to feel better. You want to hear the pastor say nice things. Judgment is awaiting us all. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us meets his righteous standards. And you cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself, right? None of us are capable of living a life that would meet up to the standard that God has laid before us because 
righteousness does not come through the law, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And so do what Paul asks us to do in verse 24. Throw yourself at the mercy of God found in Christ. As he says in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, whether you know it or not, your allegiance has changed. Like Rahab, your allegiance is different. No longer is your primary allegiance to your family. It's not to your country. It's not to your job. It's not to your favorite sports team or whatever else you might think your loyalty lies in. Or for most of us, if we dug down deep and searched our souls enough, at least for me, my allegiance often lies with self. I love myself. I worship myself. And as the great philosopher Terrell Owens said one time, I love me some me. Yet God, in his mercy, saw fit to see Jesus be a propitiation for my sin so that I might throw myself at his mercy and he might pass over my sins. Like Israel displayed through the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and their allegiance had finally moved as slaves to the Egyptians to slaves to God. Like Rahab, who displayed through the scarlet cord hanging from the window that she was no longer a slave to Jericho, but a slave to God. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to God. Your allegiance has changed. And if you have not given your life to Jesus, this morning is the morning to do so to surrender your love of self, your love of this world, and to give it over to God, the creator of the universe, to change allegiance to Jesus. You may be saying, well, hold on, where's, where's, where's the imagery continue then? God gives us two signs, like the scarlet cord or like the blood over the lampposts that we as followers of Jesus observe. Right? The first one is that we enter into the waters of baptism. Right? If you are a professing follower of Jesus here this morning and you have never been baptized, we want to baptize you. I'll, I'll walk you to Pastor Daniel's house and baptize you today if you want to be baptized. I'm opening up your house, Daniel. Hope you're ready. Right? We will baptize you in the pool today. Right? And what happens when we are baptized is we are showing a symbol that we have thrown ourselves at on the mercy of God, and we are dead in Christ, but raised to new life in him because he rose from the dead. And that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. And then if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, we do this every week at Aletheia Church. We take communion, right? We take the Lord's Supper together to celebrate, right? As a, as a sign, right? Christ pouring out his flesh and blood for us so that we might be forgiven. And by taking the elements, 
right? In observing the Lord's Supper, we are by faith taking hold of the promises of God as an act of worship, right? Stating, right, to God, we are by faith trusting that God's grace is sufficient for us in Christ. And so we're going to take communion here in just a moment. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up. And we're going to take communion as a church. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, right, I would ask you to spend a few moments in quiet reflection and contemplation, asking God to reveal any sin to you, and then confessing that sin and accepting his offer of forgiveness in Christ. And then I would ask you to take communion as an act of worship because God gave the life of his only son for you, that you might worship him. If you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you want to eat, we have some donuts in the back. We would ask that you not take communion, not because we don't love you or we want to bar the, the fence the table from you, but because God says that you are heaping condemnation on yourself if you are not in Christ. Instead, right, I would encourage you to pray and surrender. Surrender your life to him the same way the Israelites did in Egypt, the same way that Rahab did in Jericho, and the same way that many of the people sitting around you this morning have already done, finding their hope and their identity in him. And then we will walk forward by faith together, making much of God because he is worthy. Right, the whole theme in the book of Joshua is seeing God's faithfulness to his promises, Israel's response to that faithfulness, and God receiving glory as he fulfills his promises and is faithful. In church, some 3,000 years later, we are still living proof of God's faithfulness to his people time and time and time again. And for as long as we are on this earth, our testimonies declare that goodness to those around us.